0: Uh, Psalm 117, these two verses, let us, uh, let's look at them. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Now, it is short, but there's a lot of information, a lot of good stuff packed into these two verses. In fact, Spurgeon just commented on it. He said it's short and sweet. I wondered if maybe that's where that phrase originated, to be short and sweet. Well, it, it is, as we look at it. There are those who speculate that in this line of the Hallel Psalms, notice these all have Hallelujah in them somewhere, the last phrase of this psalm, Praise ye the Lord, is in Hebrew, Hallelujah. And so it is a, in a long stream here of these Egyptian Hillel psalms, they're called. And some have speculated that they probably used this song, and it was a song, to sometimes begin or end their service, much like we would use the doxology. Y'all are familiar. You know, we don't use the doxology that much, and we need to. Uh, just a short, simple presentation of truth, of calling to worship to God, and uh, this fits the bill very, very well. Uh, I've divided it into two parts. You'd have been surprised if I said, got five points out of these two verses, but no, it just got two points tonight, verse 1, verse 2, very easy division. Verse 1 is a call for the universal worship of God. Verse 2 is the reason. For such worship. And so let's take a look at verse one. You'll notice the first verse is a parallel couplet of lines. Oftentimes Hebrew poetry was like that, where you say the same thing twice using slightly different words. And you'll notice here that we have the phrase, Praise the Lord, all ye nations, praise Him, all ye people. In Hebrew, it's the words goyi and oma for nations and people. Now, when I say "goy," does that ring a bell with anybody? Or are you familiar, familiar with Yiddish? Yiddish sort of the corruption of Hebrew that Jews speak today. When Jews speak of non-Jews, what do they call them? Goyim. That's the, the corruption of this term goi. it's where they get it from, to be called a goyim by a Jew is generally not a very flattering thing, uh, with the Jews there's them and then there's everybody else, the great unwashed out there in the world, and that's you and me for the most part, well, I don't guess we got any Jewish blood in the place as far as I know, I don't have any in my line, uh, but the goyi or the goyim are their term for the Gentile world, that world that's out there, When this was translated into Greek in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, they used two other words, the words ethne. And you can recognize that that's where we get our term ethnic group. That's the word that's here translated nations. And then they used the word laos, or actually right here it's in the plural, laoi. Laos, anybody going to take a guess? Hmm? Lady? Lady? No. Laity, there you are. In the Catholic Church, you have a distinction between the clergy and the laity. And the laity is just the common run-of-the-mill people. And so laos, in Greek, is the term that means people. So in both expressions, we have a call to all the nations, all peoples. all. The term today is people groups, all people groups. To praise and to worship God Almighty. It becomes clear that God's purpose for Israel was to not see themselves as having a monopoly upon the knowledge of God Almighty, the Jehovah God of of the Bible, but to be the instrument to spread the knowledge of God throughout all the earth. Now, by the time of Jesus, that had been greatly corrupted by this idea that there's us and there's them. And to some extent, the law of Moses sort of capsulated the knowledge of God in the land of Israel. But with the coming of Christ and the middle wall of partition being broken down, now the gospel goes out into all the earth. Uh, the question often is raised, well, did the Jews fail in their mission of sending the light of the gospel into all the world? Some would say yes. I would say no. In fact, it did succeed. Because when we think about what Jesus is doing in what we call the Great Commission, what is he saying to the apostles? Go ye, therefore, into all the earth. In other words, there is the the mission now for Israel and keep in mind, all these apostles are 100% Jewish. They are now to take the light of the knowledge of God out there into the Gentile world. And By the end of the apostolic age, they had succeeded in transplanting, we might think of it, the knowledge of God out there into the Gentile world. We know just from Paul's missionary journeys that he uh, went clear around the Mediterranean basin uh, up through Antioch in Syria today. Uh, You hear a lot about the city of Aleppo in the news today. Aleppo, well, tune your ear to that and you'll see it on the news broadcast. That's where a lot of unrest is going on. And uh, that's very near where Antioch is in modern-day Syria. Uh, He went through what we would call today Turkey, through Asia Minor, into Greece, across the Aegean Sea, over into Europe, and then on to Rome. Uh, Tradition has it that he was released after his first imprisonment ...in Rome and went to Spain. Uh, So pretty much Paul just by himself... ...took the knowledge of God and the gospel... ...throughout almost the entire Mediterranean basin. Other uh, disciples went in other directions. I believe it is Thomas... ...and I may be wrong here. Somebody correct me if you know... ...that is generally thought to have died in India... ...taking the gospel in that direction... Um, Philip died in Asia Minor, in Herapolis. By tradition, keep in mind, we know a lot of this just legend uh, being passed down to us. But essentially, the apostles took the gospel out to the Gentile world, and especially Paul himself was the point man, the apostle to the Gentiles. So what I'm saying is, by the end of the apostolic age, The gospel had taken root out in the Gentile world to the extent that when Jerusalem and Israel was destroyed in 70 AD, and we'll talk about that, by the way, in Sunday school this coming Sunday morning, when Israel was destroyed in the Roman War, and pretty much the Christians again... Uh, a late tradition, Eusebius, who, were, y'all know who Eusebius was? I know Darren does, he's done a lot of reading. Uh, when Constantine became a Christian, quote-unquote, I have a lot of questions about his Christianity, but at least Constantine, who was the Roman emperor, embraced nominally Christianity, he got this fella named Eusebius in Caesarea to be the official historian of the Christian church. Keep in mind there had been no written history, just... Gospels and stuff passed along. So Eusebius took upon himself, or actually was commissioned, to do several things. Number one, to put together fifty great Bibles that were to be used in the church in Constantinople, where Constantine was the Roman ruler. He wasn't. I say Roman ruler. The Roman, the the kingdom, of the empire had divided at that point, and he had moved his headquarters to Constantinople. So first of all, they commissioned him to make fifty Bibles which is quite an amazing thing. Just the previous Roman emperor, Diocletian, had been burning Bibles, putting people to death for even having a Bible, and now the next Roman emperor is paying out of his own pocket for Eusebius to compile Bibles. Quite an amazing turn of events, to say the least. But he also commissioned him to be the historian of the Christian church, and so Eusebius began to collect, as much as he could, the sources to put together a history of Christianity, which is, by the way, still available to you today. You can get out on the Internet and read it if you wish. Fascinating reading. And what is more interesting is that a lot of his sources that he was looking at have completely disappeared. We wouldn't even know about them had it not been that Eusebius wrote this history. So in other words, the first-hand sources he was looking at, we don't have today. But we know about them because he tells us about them. And one of those accounts is that as the Roman army was approaching Jerusalem, the Christian community abandoned Jerusalem and went across the Jordan River into, uh, Decapolis, the Ten City area, the Greek area over on the east side of the Jordan River to a place called Pella where they remained during the siege of Jerusalem. So pretty much the Jerusalem church, lock, Stott, and barrel removed itself. From Jerusalem during the Roman siege of that city. Now Jesus had told them, you remember in Matthew 24, Luke uh, 21, that this was going to happen. And when you see this happen, get out of Dodge, and that's exactly what they did. So the point being is that if everything is to be anchored in the home church of Jerusalem, well, once Jerusalem falls to the Romans and is destroyed and the people there carried off into captivity, you've lost your mother church. You've lost your roots. But by the time that happened, Christianity was well entrenched out there in the Gentile world. In fact, a place like Antioch, if and again, we're, we're dealing with sources that may or may not be reliable, But the church in Antioch, by the end of the first century, we're told, had a thousand elders, over a hundred thousand people in the church of Antioch by the end of the first century. And so by the end of the first century, that church out there in the Gentile world, which is a blend, by the way, of both Jews and Gentiles in a place like Antioch, has far eclipsed the Jerusalem church. And you have from... Then on, Jerusalem church at their councils was generally sort of given an honorary position, but it really didn't amount to anything. But it didn't have to, because Christianity was not tied to a place like Judaism, tied to the temple, tied to Jerusalem. Christianity was now loosed, is out of the box, and it was spreading throughout the rest of the world. We today have more or less entered into the, entered into the apostolic ministry we are continuing to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's parts of this earth they never got to. Parts of this earth they didn't even know about. But we continue in that apostolic mission of taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, you say, okay, Brother Mark, then aren't you reading a little bit much into this to say that this text is telling us that the apostles are going to take the gospel into all the world? Aren't you stretching things just a little bit here? Well, I might think that were it not for Romans 15. Turn over to Romans 15. Paul is discussing the apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. In Romans 15, verse 8, he says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Now notice what he's saying is that Christ first of all ministered to the Jews, to the circumcision. We see that many times in Jesus' earthly ministry that he sent his disciples out. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to Samaria. Go only to the villages, the cities of Israel. The Syrophoenician woman came to him asking him to cast the devil out of her daughter. He says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was Israel that was his focus and he was the minister of the circumcision as Paul is putting it here. For the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. In other words, all that God had promised to the fathers, Christ came and confirmed. They came to a head of fulfillment in the ministry of Christ. But notice the and in the next verse, verse 9. That's just half of what he came to do. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I'm, I'm thinking of Isaiah 49, and I hated to put that down and turn there because it, we, we looked at it not that long ago. Isaiah, I guess it was in our Tuesday morning Bible study. In Isaiah 49, where God says to his servant, the servant is saying he's gotten to the end of his work, and he's accomplished nothing, no fruit, and God is saying to his servant, I'm going to reward you, I'm going to reward It's a light thing that you should bring back the remnant of Israel. I'm going to make you a light to all nations, to the Gentiles. Here you see the fulfillment of that, that yes, Christ had a ministry directed to the Jews, but he also had the intent of taking the light of the knowledge of God into all the world. And so that's what Paul is alluding to here. Two things. He was a minister of the circumcision, but he's also to be the one who will take light to the Gentiles. And to prove that, Paul now cites a number of, Of Old Testament text. Starting in the middle of verse 9. For this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles. And sing unto thy name. That's out of um, Psalm 18. Again he says rejoice ye Gentiles. uh, With his people. That's out of Deuteronomy 32. And again praise the Lord all ye Gentiles. And laud him all ye peoples. Where would that come from? right out of our text. If we're reading this in Greek, it'd be, Praise the Lord, all ye ethne, and laud him, all ye laos. Same words used in the Septuagint it can translate those Hebrew terms over there. In other words, he is quoting, here that this tiny psalm, Paul is quoting it as an example of, of the consistent testimony of the Old Testament that Christ's purpose was not only to be a minister to the Jews, but also to take the light of the gospel into all the Gentile world. And then he goes on and adds to that in verse 12. Again, Isaiah said, and this is out of Isaiah 11, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. And so you begin to see that Paul is citing our text, of all things, this tiny psalm, as proof that God's ultimate purpose in the ministry of Christ was not just for Israel. Yes, there was a work in that direction, but ultimately it was to take the gospel into all the earth. And so here you see it in Psalm 117, where the Gentiles, the nations, are being called upon to praise God. Well, then in verse 2, hurrying along, To the second point, we see the reasons why they are to praise God. Notice it says, For his merciful kindness is great toward us. And great here is not so much talking about the size of it as it is the power of it, the strength of it, that his mercy is powerful towards us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. So notice we are magnifying the strength of his mercy and his kindness, and we are magnifying the constancy, the immutability of his truth. Mercy, truth. Jim, when he was with us just a few weeks ago, Jim Gables was talking about Holiness, how our ideas of holiness are a little bit askewed in that when we say that God is a holy God, what we mean is that he is set apart, he is other than anything we can conceive of. He's far more powerful, far more wise. He's in a class by himself, let's put it that way. And so he's a holy God. We tend to think that holiness implies moral purity and so forth. Well, it does, but there's a reason. Because to be set apart to this God, this particular God, the one and only, the unique God that we worship, is a God whose character is expressed in two ways. And it's constantly in Scripture being expressed in two ways. Here you see it. Mercy and truth. In other words, there are two sides to the character of God. You ask yourself, okay, we're set apart to this God who is not like any other. What is that God like? And therefore, if I'm set apart to him, what am I supposed to be like? I, I mentioned in was that in Sunday school where we were talking about the prostitute that Judah is his daughter-in-law. It's a rather sordid story back there in the Old Testament about Judah uh, having relations with his daughter-in-law. He thought she's a prostitute and uh, later on sends his servant back to pay her. And the servant can't find her. And the servant begins to ask around the men of that area, where's that that prostitute? But the word he uses could easily be translated, where's that holy woman? The holy woman. The idea is a lot of times prostitution in the ancient world was connected to these fertility cults. And to how sex was the way you worshipped at one of these fertility cults. I won't go into all the graphic details, but you can sort of get get the picture from that. So here is a woman who is a shrine prostitute. That means she's set apart to this God. She's holy. That's what holy means, to be set apart. What determines what that means is the God you're set apart to. If he's a God of war, you go out and kill somebody. If he's a God of sex, you have sex. You you get the picture? Whatever the character of the God is that you're holy to is going to then define what holiness means to you. Well, in our case, the God that we're set apart to is defined by these two things, and and sometimes other words are used, but here you see them, back to back, side by side, mercy and truth. Um, Moses in Exodus 34 has asked God to show him his glory, to declare His name. And in Exodus 34, God says to Moses, stand right here, I'm going to declare my name. And He says, the Lord God, merciful, kind, compassionate, who will not overlook sin and visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There you got it. Mercy and truth. Now you say, where you get?" truth out of that. If you're reading, it's interesting, the translators have struggled with trying to get across the the idea here. Uh, There's a ton of references where you find these terms used together, and if you're reading out of the NIV, they're not very consistent. They will translate what's here called mercy. They will call it love in some places or kindness in other places, What's called truth here, they'll translate either by truth or by the term truth of faithfulness. And so when we say he's a God of truth, what we're saying is, uh, you ever hear the expression, "Be, be true to your school? That was out of some hokey teen musical back when I was a kid. Be true to your school. Be true to your spouse. Be true. In other words, it's the idea of faithful. Fidelity. And so, therefore, the NIV sometimes translates this faithfulness. The NASB, at least, was consistent. They constantly translate this first term that's translated here, mercy, by the term loving kindness. Loving kindness. Over and over. They never vary. It's always loving kindness. The other side, they'll sometimes translate truth, sometimes faithfulness. The NASB is pretty accurate word-for-word translation. Uh, The ESV... Uh, just stuck to one thing what is here called mercy they call steadfast love and what is called truth they translate faithfulness so notice that the notion here is not so much truth as a revelation although that's part of it but it's being faithful to something the fidelity of God to his word to his promises to his covenant and especially to his own nature that God cannot change, He cannot contradict Himself, or as Paul put it in writing to Titus, God who cannot lie. You say, well, why can't God lie? Is it just too hard? His mouth doesn't know how to make the words? No. It is because His nature is truth, and He must act in accordance to His own nature. You say, but God, if he's God, he's omnipotent, he can do anything. No, he can't. Paul said he can't lie. There's a lot of things God... In fact, it'd be a good study. Maybe on some Sunday morning we can have a sermon on what God can't do. Because in my mind, it's just as important for you to understand what he can't do than what he can do. You say, well, what can't he do? He can't cease to be... He can't quit being God. You can quit your job. He can't quit. He cannot cease to be. Because if he can cease to be, he's not God in the first place. There are a lot of things God can't do. Paul wrote Timothy that if we deny him, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's another thing God can't do. You say, what do you mean, deny himself? He cannot contradict his own nature. And that's exactly what we mean here by the term truth. That God is faithful, faithful to his word, to his promises, to his covenants, and to himself, that he cannot change. He must be this way. And on the other hand, he is a God of, well, the SV, I like steadfast love, except it doesn't work in some of the places where it's used. There's places where you'll see the steadfast love of the Lord is for everlasting, everlasting. And that's like saying the constant love is constant. It's a truism, a redundancy. I tell you all are just really interested in these critical. I saw a bumper sticker one time. I'm into bumper stickers. I like them. This guy's head on a bumper sticker, help stamp out and abolish redundancy. Anyway, but you understand, when we say the steadfast of the Lord is forever, verses say that, well, what else could steadfast love be but forever? You understand? It's like saying this unchangeable love never changes. You're not, So, steadfast love, okay, I understand. It just doesn't work everywhere. But, it, but at least the ESV was consistent. Everywhere you find this word that's here translated, mercy, it's always translated steadfast love in the S V. The idea is the kindness, compassion, and mercy and grace of God. But notice, anybody see a problem here? That if God on the one hand is faithful and true to himself, to his word, to his law, then how can he at the same time be merciful and gracious? How can he be a forgiving God when he's the God who visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, who will by no means clear the guilty? Because you see to us, when we ask for mercy, if we go before the judge and we ask for mercy, we're asking the judge to overlook what law demands. The law says you're guilty, you ought to go to jail, but I'm asking for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. For the judge to send it, you to the electric chair and then say, boy, wasn't I merciful to him? No, you weren't. You were just to him. You weren't merciful. To show mercy seems to us to mean you must forego justice. You see the problem? To show justice means you forego mercy. You'll see the problem? How can he be both at the same time? How can he be a merciful God, yet a just God? How can he be the merciful God and the truth, faithful, fidel, uh, the, the God who's faithful to himself, who cannot deny his own holy nature? How can that be? There's am glad you asked these good questions. Psalm 85. Turn there. Psalm 85. You'll notice that Psalm 85, if you just glance over the first verses, is that God has brought back His people from captivity. And verse 2, He's forgiven their iniquity. He's taken away His wrath. He's turned from the fierceness of His anger in verse 3. Well, how did that happen? Notice verse seven, uh, 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Notice that what this is saying is that God is doing something, and the way He's doing it, He is neither foregoing His mercy or His truth, but that mercy and truth are being reconciled. Now let that sink in. That God is a God of Mercy, and we think mercy means you forego law, justice. But he's also a God of justice, and we think to forego justice, you've got to forego mercy. But in this case, in the forgiving of his people, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. They've made up. How's that happen? Paul makes this the heart of the gospel. In Romans chapter 3, we might think that what the gospel is, is that this God of law, this God of justice, this holy, pure God who cannot look upon the least sin with the least degree of favor, that this God has chilled out in his old age, That the good news is that he's not going to be as strict as he was. And in that Old Testament age, man, they had all that law they had to keep and nobody much was getting saved because they couldn't do it. So the New Testament comes along and God just lowered the standard down to what almost anybody can do. I mean, all you got to do is raise your hand, nod your head, walk an aisle, say a prayer. Anybody can get saved this way. That's the good news. The God, the good news for sinners is that God is chilled and has lowered his standard. That's not the gospel. Because Paul makes it very clear that this God is still the righteous, just God. But what the gospel is, is that the righteousness that you and I need as sinners has been provided for us by another. A righteousness, an alien, foreign to us, righteousness that we receive by faith so that, verse 26 of Romans 3, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. That the way God forgives us does not lower his law. There is the old saying, the old preachers used to say that the law, the glory of God, and the glory of the law never shone any brighter at Mount Sinai than it did at Mount Calvary. C.W. Johnson used to say, if God is not a God of law and justice, then pray tell me what in the world is Jesus doing hanging on that cross? If you think God can let sin slide, sweep it under the rug, then what in the world is Jesus doing on that cross? Why did he have to go? And then he would add to that, but if you think God is not a God of love and mercy, what in the world is Jesus doing on that cross? That there at the cross on Calvary, mercy, truth, are brought together. Peace righteousness, have kissed each other. That God is now the God who is both just and the justifier of sinners who deserve hell. And yet at the end of the day, He's just. He has not lowered the demands of His holy law. The law has been magnified and glorified in the death of His own Son. And yet at the same time, His mercy and His grace has been magnified and glorified In the salvation of his people. That at the cross of Calvary. God solved the most difficult moral problem. To ever face the moral universe. How can a just God. Justify the ungodly. And be just in doing it. There is a verse. I remember John Riesinger pointing this out one time. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That would give, you talk about getting somebody in a knot. Any Jewish rabbi hearing those words, it would put them in a Gordian knot that they couldn't get out of. What do you mean God justifies the ungodly? Because the the judge is supposed to justify the just. He's supposed to condemn the ungodly. Here God is justifying the ungodly. And he's just in the way that he does it. Because the demands of law are not being swept under the rug. They're being met in the person, in the work, in the blood of Calvary's cross. So this psalm is basically two things. Calling all the Gentiles to the worship of this God. And number two, showing them why they ought to worship this God. Because there's none other like him, who is both just and the justifier of sinners like you and me. So it's short, but it is sweet. Okay. Any comments? Any Yes, Charles? yeah Yeah, yeah, it's a good point that yeah, I would say that verse one is clearly a command. It's a call of uh, a, a directive to all the nations to worship the God of Israel. And you are right to say that his truth endures forever then implies that what is true never changes, which goes, that's such a strange thought that our day is so twisted and so perverted that in the postmodern world there is no truth that endures forever. Truth is whatever's true to you, for you, whatever you like, that's true, that's your truth. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, you may recall, used the term true truth (laughs) And that's terrible. When when do we have to put an adjective before truth? But but Schaefer, and this is 30, 40 years ago over in Switzerland, uh, Schaefer realized in the culture of his day that you couldn't just use the word truth anymore because truth doesn't mean what it used to mean. Uh, It just means whatever people want it to mean. And so he used the phrase true truth to indicate this truth that endures forever, this unchangeless, timeless truth. Anything else? So, you can see why this would make a good call to worship. Here's the call to worship. Here's reasons why. There is this God whose mercy, and I didn't dwell much on that great but powerful mercy. Powerful mercy. Paul said he was apprehended by it. I love his choice of words there in Philippians 3. Oh, I'm pursuing Christ that I may apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. I want to seize that for which I have been seized. Wonderful choice of words. The point is, is that grace is not just some nebulous thing out there, some force, the force to be with you, but this powerful thing that seizes souls for Jesus Christ. And therein lies that. Great is your mercy. We're testimonies of that. that We've been found like the prodigal at great cost, great work. It's interesting in Isaiah 53 when Isaiah is prophesying of the cross. And you know in that very first verse of Isaiah 53, Lord to whom, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord Been revealed. Now, God doesn't have two arms like we have, but it's an anthropomorphism. The power, the strength, the might. To whom has that been revealed? And we would have to say, Here's one. I know a little bit about the power of this thing called God's mercy. I know what it does when it comes upon you. I know. And I think old Saul of Tarsus knew a little bit about that. Having had an encounter with the risen, resurrected Christ, and we could understand if Christ appeared to him to condemn him and destroy him, but instead Christ appeared to him to save him. And basically later Paul will say, that ought to be an example to all of you. If God can save me, He can save anybody. I'm a testimony of His mercy. Don't anybody despair that you're beyond the power of God to save. Because here's you're, you're the worst of the worst. You ever notice the transition in Paul? I was going to preach on this sometime. I'm going to give it away. But early, if you follow the chronology, he had said at one time that he was the least of the apostles. Remember that? I'm trying to think of the sequence. Unto me, who is less than the least of the saints, That's later in his ministry. First, he was the least of the apostles. Now, to me, who am less than the least of the saints, is this great given? Now he's less than the least of the saints. And then, writing in Saint Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. He's working his way to the bottom. Do you notice that? (laughs) He was just the least of the apostles, then the least of saints, now the least or chief of sinners. But that's the way grace works. We work our way up by working our way to the bottom.